other part of the story that I just love, Stuart, is the fact that El Chapo had him put a microphone eavesdropping feature on 50 phones so that if you had a conversation with El Chapo, whether you were his girlfriend or one of his deputies pushing drugs, when you hung up and maybe after the boss or boyfriend chewed you out, you said, boy, that guy's a real jerk. El Chapo knew. If you're working for an insecure boss that has cartel-like tendencies, just think about that after you hang up. You may still be effectively on the line with your boss. Yeah, Especially well, I, I, if the I, boss gave you the phone. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, look, everybody who works for government, their boss gave them the phone and there's a notoriously insecure guy at the top of the government. So you never know. I think those White House secure phones uh, may look more like El Chapo's than you'd think. Welcome to episode 246 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government uh, in the middle of a government shutdown plus a six-inch snowstorm that has uh, would have collapsed the government anyway. Uh, so we all have plenty of time uh, uh, to talk about cyber law. Uh, I'm joined by Maury Schenk, uh, who uh, was in our London office and now advises us on European and uh, Asian technology and security issues. Uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, who uh, uh, is a visiting scholar at the National Security Institute, formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Uh, Nick Weaver, uh, a senior researcher at uh, Berkeley, uh, also a lecturer there. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program. We're going to jump right in because I really want to talk about this uh, story. Uh, uh, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal about uh, – what the Russians have been doing in our power grid. Uh, uh, Matthew, get us started. Well, the story says that uh, the Russians have been lurking in our power grid for quite some time, and their most common way of accessing it is not to go through the major utilities, which have some semblance of cybersecurity, but it's to go through the endless number of contractors that support these utilities, then working their way through them, they get passwords, they fish, they do all the things that hackers normally do to wreak havoc, and then once they're in the system, they're there, and they have done a pretty decent job, at least up till now, of remaining dormant and undetected. So, Nick, it looks as though one of the ways they uh, have found to get in is to figure out websites, obscure uh, newsletter websites that might be visited by people who care about uh, uh, power grid technology and to poison the website so everybody who goes there ends up owned, and then to take their uh, their ownership uh, from there to the next level and on into the uh, uh, the grid. Is that pretty much what they're doing? Uh, it's a good summary. So they are starting with what we call watering hole attacks, where you compromise a website, use it to either get passwords or inject malicious code directly onto victims from victim A, then you send out mail to victim B that if the victim acts on would be triggered. And because it's people you trust, you're going to say yes, because let's face it, Stuart, how many people you know send you things like PowerPoint attachments or links to Dropbox or Google Docs? It's simply we've created this workflow around trust that makes it very easy to do certain things, including if an attacker takes over uh, your account to be able to attack your colleagues. Well, and, and in some of these cases, I think people were a little suspicious and they sent notes back saying, is this really you? And uh, the hacker said, yes, yes, it's me. Open the attachment. Yeah. 
what what would you do if you were controlling somebody's email account and you got a request back that said, are you sure this is you? You'd say, yeah, of course it's me. Well, okay, but this is really, in many ways, this is very ballsy. Not only sitting on the account and sending out uh, fake reassurances, but the fact they must have known they were going to get caught doing this. Uh, And uh, isn't this kind of uh, Vladimir Putin's thumb in the eye of what was then the Obama administration is now the Trump administration? Yeah, but the Russians have been pretty brazen now for a few years. And what consequences have they suffered? We haven't really upped sanctions. We haven't done the option of really getting them off of SWIFT and getting them out of the global economy. We just uh, take it. Well, that's uh, Matthew, let me ask you. Uh, this really raises the question because this is basically Putin saying, if I don't like what your administration does – I can take out power in large chunks of the country for an indeterminate amount of time, causing you endless pain, maybe causing deaths, uh, uh, and uh, dramatically shrinking your political capital. Uh, He didn't have to say it because we all know it now that he's he's gotten into these systems. Uh, uh, What is the right response to that? Do we have to wait until he actually turns out the lights? Well, I certainly hope not because that would seem to be a bit like the old saying of closing the barn door after the cow leaves. You know, I think there are things, and I'm hoping, you know, as we read these stories in the Wall Street Journal, I certainly hope to the extent that the Russians are mapping out our grid, that our intelligence community is doing the exact same thing. I hope they're being a little bit lower key about it. But I also think we've got to start thinking about optionality so that when these things happen, maybe we send a couple of shots across the bow uh, via cyber means to say there is a consequence of this. So maybe the lights start flickering in some far-flung town in, in uh, Russia. Because I, I think until we do that, as Nick just said, Putin, in his mind, it's it's a green light and there's no consequence to doing it. Yeah, my favorite idea in this, in this area is to say, uh, uh, dear Vlad, um, we know you're in our grid. We understand the implicit threat. We're trusting in your responsibility not to use the tools that you have given yourself. Similarly, we have put a whole bunch of mines at the bottom of all your harbors. Uh, but don't worry. They're at the bottom. They won't come up unless they get a signal from a device that we tied to the grid. And as long as the grid stays up, they stay down. The other thing that we should worry about is the oil refining infrastructure because a computer attacker in an oil refinery in particular who's good could make it go boo. Yes, uh, absolutely could. We haven't seen that, but we've seen attempts to do that in the Middle East, probably Iranian-inspired, so maybe they weren't quite as good. I think the Russians are better and probably could pull it off. They certainly could uh, brick all the machines in the refinery and cause the refinery to have to shut down. That's uh, the cheery news for the week. Uh, In some actual good news, uh, uh, Maury, uh, the right to be forgotten lawsuit has gone to the European Court of Justice. And the question is, should we give Americans the benefit of our European censorship? Uh, In other words, if Google is told to take down a reference to some European who doesn't like this news story about him, should Google be required to take it down everywhere in the world. And uh, Google says no, the French uh, data protection authorities say yes. And there was just some preliminary good news in that litigation. Yes, the advocate general or one of the advocate generals of the European Court of Justice, Marek 
Spoonar. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name correctly. There's Actually, I checked, and that is, that's a perfectly legitimate pronunciation. Thanks. I, I got lucky. And so he has agreed with Google's approach. Google's approach is to block if there's a successful right to be forgotten request, they block it throughout the EU and they block it from abroad when one of their foreign sites, non-EU sites, is accessed by a person from the country uh, where the initial complaint came from. So not anybody in the EU. And the uh, ECJ Advocate General has basically backed that approach. His rationale was effectively, if we take uh, the French CNIL, the French Data Protection Regulators approach, we're going to have a global race to the bottom on free expression. You can imagine, you know, that Turkey adopts a similar policy and says anti any anti-Erdogan uh, website must be blocked globally and any number of other similar examples. And it's refreshing to see that the advocate general has not gone for that. Yeah, it is a surprise. I, look, I, I, I continue to believe that this European Court of Justice is so profoundly anti-American that any opportunity to beat uh, a U.S. technology company over the head, they will want to seize. So I don't uh, know that they'll take the advocate general's advice, uh, though they usually do. But it's nice to see a certain amount of sobriety from uh, European regulators on this. A word of caution, the advocate general, they usually take his advice, but the Google Spain, the original right to be forgotten case, was one of the ones where they didn't. Yeah, because they hated Google so much, they just couldn't resist. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, they've written opinions based on erroneous newspaper clippings because they didn't want to send the case back for uh, actual findings of fact because that might have gotten in the way of their uh, ability to punish Facebook, I think it was in that case. Uh, uh, they're just deranged by uh, uh, not even Trump, but they're deranged by the United States. This week in drone law, the UK has been suffering through a nightmare that DHS and uh, the FAA originally foresaw in the United States and asked for legislation to address. Uh, Maury, uh, uh, can you tell us what was happening in the UK? And then we'll ask Nick about the uh, uh, the US legislation. Yeah, I mean, there, it was really big news here. There was just before Christmas, drones kept popping up near Gatwick Airport. And they, you know, they try to find it, try to find where it was being controlled from, it would disappear, and it would pop up again. And these were small drones, probably wouldn't have uh, damaged an aircraft, but they weren't willing to take the risk. And they shut down Gatwick for a couple of days. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people were delayed in their travel. My um, wife's parents lived near there. We were headed there, and it even affected the traffic a bit, even if you weren't going to the airport. You know, and there's no easy solution. I mean, it, they didn't want to. Apparently, the military is allowed to shoot these things down. But then you got to worry about where the bullets that are shot at it will land, where the drone's going to land. Bruce Schneier has an interesting piece on all the risks of this. There just is not an easy solution. So, Nick, DHS actually, and this is, a, you know, it doesn't often happen. The government's ahead of the curve. But DHS asked for legislation and got it that allowed it to intercept drones and try to take them down if they intruded into the airspace that was uh, critical. I guess my question is, can they actually do that now that they have the authority? They can't do it yet. The problem is, is there's two things. You can at least do jamming. So things like what was at the Gatwick airport, you could actually probably 
take out with existing tools. You just jam the signal, confuse it, it drops from the sky. The problem is, is the next generation of attackers respond to jamming with um, kill all humans mode. <laughs> and so we can no longer rely on jamming. The authorities that DHS got, though, are wonderfully specific and yet wonderfully broad. It's very specific in where the authority to take down a drone can be used has to be declared by the secretary and a whole bunch of other hoops to go through. But it's very open in what you can do to take it out. So you can jam it, you could hack it, you could blow it out of the sky. It's designed as a blanket set of authorities that are specific in location in advance, and that location's not delegated downward, but does not presuppose anything on the technology. And there are a lot of people working on better technology to deal with the problem. And it's really nice to have a legal framework that will allow the government to use whatever technology people like me come up with. So the thing I was interested in is how hard it was to figure out where the people were. They never did. They, they, they thought they had somebody, arrested them, and then let them go. They couldn't figure out who was doing this, who was controlling it, and where. And one of the things that the DHS legislation authorizes is intercepts of the signals between the uh, controller and the drone. And you would have thought that the republic was going to fall if you'd been subscribing to the ACLU and EPIC and EFF's uh, 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 feeds because they said, oh, my God, we can't have that. That's allowing new wiretap authority. But I think this episode shows exactly why you need that kind of thing. Yes. And that's the thing. The EFF and other arguments for it neglected the importance of the geographic specificity. It was not a blanket prohibition on enforcement of the Wiretap Act. It was not a blanket cutout. It was very targeted in location, just not targeted in method. And I'm glad that the EFF lost this one. Well, let me, let me just slide to a different uh, question. Matthew, uh, the Fourth Circuit issued a ruling kind of Following on the notion that the president couldn't block people on Twitter, essentially saying the same thing about a county councilman who had maintained a Facebook page uh, for her chairmanship. This is becoming a thing. Uh, is this good law or are these uh, outlier uh, decisions? Well, I mean, the Fourth Circuit is certainly in line with the Second Circuit, um, and so the Second Circuit is where the Trump case is happening. I, I think the courts recognize that they're, they're sort of aligning around this idea that Facebook or Twitter are public forums for uh, public officials, but also in this Fourth Circuit opinion, there was a clear request from the Second Circuit said, we need help from the Supreme Court, and the Fourth Circuit invited that too. So I think they're all saying, this is what we agree on. The courts are aligned, but we're really not sure. And Supreme Court tell us if we're right. Yeah, I was thinking. I was reading that uh, decision, and I, I kept thinking to myself, they're making a big deal about how this is a government-owned forum or a government-controlled forum, and you could solve this problem if you really didn't like uh, uh, the constraints the court put on you 
just by pay, having people from your campaign paid to maintain the page. And you just say this is the uh, the Facebook page of successful candidate for county cha- uh, uh, chair and say it's part of my campaign structure and not part of the government. Uh, it means you have to pay for it instead of uh, uh, getting the government to pay for it. And maybe they, they'll make the trade and maybe they won't. But it's a very funny line that's being drawn. Essentially what this – court seems to say is this, when the county chair sets up a page using her uh, own name and uh, providing the information, uh, if she's doing it as a county chair, that's a government function or a government-controlled forum, and if she did it as an individual, it wouldn't be. I think that's right, and I think that's why if, if I were advising politicians who wanted to have social media platforms, uh, at least until this case shakes out, I think some of the things you mentioned, Stuart, would be helpful to create some daylight. In other words, don't put a lot of stuff from your official, in your official capacity as that official. But if you want to use these platforms as a candidate running for office and you want to have your staff maintain it, not you, then that's the way to go. I mean, but the, the reality here is, at least up to now, the courts are saying, just because constituents or other users of Facebook and Twitter don't like what you're doing and send you nasty messages, it doesn't allow you to block them. You know, I think the other piece of this is, so are, are politicians that thin-skinned that they can't deal with a couple of nasty messages on Facebook? I mean, I'm not saying that's what the law should be, but it strikes me that, uh, you know, life would go on if they just ignored those messages. There's certainly no mandate that they engage with these people. Yeah. So the courts are basically saying, uh, no, we don't want public officials censoring their Twitter feed, their Facebook feed, because that's Facebook's job. That's Twitter's job. They'll decide what uh, uh, readers of those uh, social media can say, uh, not to the people they initially said were going to control it. Uh, so, yeah. All right. I got to ask, Nick, the Hal Martin thing, just when you thought it couldn't get any weirder, did um, yeah. What happened? So what happened is apparently the trigger for the initial search warrant was some Twitter DMs between Hal Martin's account and various Kaspersky researchers that were really weird in the sense that it would be like a couple of mysterious DMs. And then the Martin account would block the Kaspersky account so that the Kaspersky account could not reply. Yeah, and he wanted and, to talk to Evgeny, which is Evgeny Kaspersky. So it, it sounded like a high-level reach-out. He had some weird stuff in there in which he said, uh, you know, the uh, uh, this offer expires in three weeks. Uh, it, uh, and it came out like a couple of hours before some of the shadow broker's leaks, right? Yeah, and what apparently happened is Kaspersky told some of their friends in the IC, and that's what triggered the eventual search warrant of Martin's house. But it's doubly strange. First of all, that behavior is unusual. Marcy Wheeler has the excellent observation that it could have been somebody compromising the account because, let's face it, the shadow brokers have been trolling the NSA for a long time. But would they, would they troll them by, by sending messages to Kaspersky? Maybe. Who oh, okay. Knows? So, so uh, there's an elaborate conspiracy theory here that says uh, the GRU had uh, knew, knew they were going to release uh, shadow brokers. They wanted to uh, 
put the blame on Martin, and they also hoped to make Kaspersky into a hero so nobody would uh, uh, stop using them in the West. And so they took over Hal Martin's account. They, they sent these fake messages, and then Kaspersky got to play the hero. Is that the the the, the conspiracy theory version? That is, is the uh, tinfoil hat version. But even the normal version is weird, especially because I'm pretty certain Hal Martin was not the primary source for Shadow Brokers. Uh-huh. If you look at the Shadow Brokers data, it's not normal data pack rat stuff. Three of the four distinct dumps are personalized. Two of them are operator stations where you log into a remote system and set it up as a staging ground. And there's all these notes, files, etc. that says what individual was responsible for this data. And it wasn't Hal Martin. No. And the Swift data was, we know who the guy is. It's some NSA guy who was in Texas at the time because his name is over the metadata in the Word document. And this was his system low side workstation where he was working on a PowerPoint. And we still don't have a good explanation in public for how this data got out at all. Yeah. So they asked me for comment on the story. Uh, and I said, what's discouraging about it is that we thought that uh, uh, NSA's counterintelligence had gotten really good and they were finding the people who were the sources of all these leaks uh, and that this is that they got Hal Martin because of their improved capability. And now it turns out they got Hal Martin because he's an idiot. And in fact, the other thing on Hal Martin is he should have been nailed right at the start. If anything post-Snowden should have been the ability to detect and mitigate the data pack rats, that when you see somebody accessing too much stuff onto removable media, you just give them a talking to. Speaking of talking to, Maury, uh, uh, Vietnam says it's going to be talking to Facebook uh, and uh, fines are in the offing for failing to localize data and to respond immediately to their takedown notices. Uh, I know you you, you actually looked at this for a client. Uh, uh, How serious is the Vietnamese law? Well, it's one of these countries like Turkey is another example that jumps to mind where they suddenly have a very restrictive regime for content online. This, it had been attracted most attention because of data retention, because it's adopted very broad uh, requirements on communications data that need to be retained, and it has to be stored in Vietnam. And a lot of the big U.S. tech companies have admitted that they are out of compliance with that. It also makes illegal a lot of different kinds of content, including anti-government content. And so Facebook, some of its users are not um, unpredictably posted anti-government content to Vietnam. They were notified of it, uh, presumably by the government, didn't take it down fast enough to make uh, the government happy. And, and you know, now they're going after Facebook, presumably with fines. I think it's, a you know, Vietnam's not a um, colossal market, but it's a pretty big, fast growing country. And I think it's a pretty big deal for doing Internet business in Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, they're obviously learning from watching everybody from the EU to the Chinese uh, impose fines on uh, big Internet uh, companies and get what they want. And uh, uh, they figure they're big enough to do that, too. Yeah. I mean, anybody who wants to play in these markets, um, we've seen with Apple recently how, you know, subtle changes in a market can have a pretty big effect on commercial results. And so, you know, it's... uh, 
even in a market like that, I think the internet companies have to pay some attention to those kind of tactics. So let me ask you about a different uh, regulatory regime. Uh, there was a story in Motherboard and uh, about uh, how easy it was to get phone location data, maybe not to the level of a Google Maps uh, uh, pinpoint, but something that takes you within a few hundred yards, uh, just by uh, buying it uh, very indirectly through services provided by mobile phone companies. Uh, and all of the mobile phone companies have now said, oh, yeah, yeah, that thing, we're not doing that anymore. What do you make of that episode? Well, I've seen this in the UK a, a number of years ago. This information has been available for a long time. It's base station data, and it triangulates between the various base stations which a uh, mobile is communicating with and takes information from the signal strength and can get a pretty close location. Not as good as GPS, but in urban areas, it can be down to the tens of meters, and then you send in with somebody with a stingray to find the device if you're law enforcement. Uh, a little bit further in rural areas. I was a director of a UK company that used this kind of information for law enforcement purposes, and we you know, complied with UK law, but we bought it through commercial channels. Um, and in the EU, using this for tracking individuals generally requires consent under GDPR. Um, in the US, it's not clear if you can buy the data that you violate any law by figuring out where somebody is located. Uh, although the use of the data seems to be gray in terms of the contractual arrangements under which the carriers are distributing it. So this stuff has been out there for a long time, and um, I think some users might be concerned about it. So Ron Wyden played a big role in trying to get everybody to back down, and I, I have to say this strikes me as another of his hobby horses where we're going to end up regretting it because there are a lot of valuable things. If somebody has stolen, has, has tried to persuade, is trying to persuade Verizon to switch my phone number to them so they can steal all of my uh, uh, accounts by sending uh, uh, password change requests based on my mobile phone, one of the things that they can do is to check my location. Same thing with banks. If the bank wants to make sure that this is the person that they want to be dealing with and that this isn't a fraud, they check to see where the person is located when they're using their phone. At least the third-party uses are going to fail if all of these companies are browbeaten into not providing location data to anybody. But at the yeah. same time, a company can get location data with the user's consent in other ways. So if ever you have app interface, the app can give location with user consent. The thing is, is this is non-consensual and being sold to companies who sell it to sell it to sell it. And it basically is like oil. It's spilled into the ecology and it spreads everywhere. That's for sure. No, it, it, once once it's out, it's out. That's the that's what we've learned about data. You you can't really control data as it gets cheaper. It gets easier. People just start throwing it around. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I'm not sure that let's say you're a bail bondsman looking for somebody who has jumped bail. It's going to be a little hard to get consent from them to find their uh, location. Well, and even in the EU, for some of these uses where there are security implications, you can make a pretty strong argument that GDPR permits doing it without consent. I think the, the issue is, as you and Nick just had an exchange, you know, once it's out there, it's hard to draw the line between the legitimate uses and the, and the problematic uses. And we have to figure out whether there's any way to control that. Okay. Uh, last comic relief 
the El Chapo trial is like a guide to weird security problems that you have when you're a uh, narco lord with a two mistresses and a wife uh, whom you want to keep track of uh, and an entire secure communication system to set up. Uh, uh, and El Chapo seems to have chosen exactly the wrong way to do that. Nick, uh, what did he do? Well, what he did is he did the thing that the security people say never to do in secure communications, and that was try to do something custom. So he had a dedicated system administrator, dedicated phones, dedicated cryptography of some sort or the other. And this was all fine and good until the feds flipped El Chapo sysadmin. And El Chapo sysadmin happily gave the feds access to the communication server that acted as the intermediary and could therefore see all of the data because it wasn't actually end-to-end encrypted. So the net result is All the secure communication meant is that it specifically was a secure channel to FBI headquarters. Matthew, did you ever flip a witness while you were at NSD? Did you ever take somebody like El Chapo's IT director and say, uh, we have a deal for you? Uh, uh, Or was that not uh, part of your uh, job description? I don't remember ever being involved in something quite like this. Because I'm just wondering. what uh, much more pedestrian. Yeah, it, it seems to me for this IT guy to do this to one of the most bloodthirsty narco-terrorists around uh, uh, must have been a little daunting unless he just thought, well, this guy, he's too stupid to ever figure out what I'm doing. Perhaps, or he figured I'm a dead man either way because maybe El Chapo wasn't happy with his IT service. (laughs) <laughs> well, at one point he did say, you know, yeah. boss, we need to move from Canada to uh, the Netherlands because we'll get better the service there. Yep. Well, the other thing, the other part of the story that I just love, Stuart, is the fact that El Chapo had him put um, a microphone eavesdropping feature on 50 phones so that if you had a conversation with El Chapo, whether you were his girlfriend or one of his deputies pushing drugs, when you hung up and maybe after the boss or boyfriend chewed you out, you said, boy, that guy's a real jerk. El Chapo knew. Because he was listening so, still. Yeah. If you're working for an insecure boss that has, you know, cartel-like tendencies, just think about that after you hang up. You may still be effectively on the line with your boss. Yeah. Especially well, I, if I, the I, boss gave you the phone. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, look, everybody who works for government, their boss gave them the phone. And, uh, you know, there's a notoriously insecure guy at the top of the government. So uh, you never know. I think those White House phone, secure phones uh, uh, may look more like El Chapo's than you think. Uh, look, I, I think we, we ought to cut this off. Uh, There are some other great stories. Uh, Reed Hoffman uh, uh, is under investigation for basically trying to do what the Russians did, uh, but in 2018 instead of 2016. uh, Huawei's employee has been uh, arrested for espionage in Poland, and Huawei has said he brought disrepute on the company and they fired him. Uh, China has 2 million resumes just sitting on a database that nobody understands, uh, no one knows where the database came from, or at least who who was maintaining it. So the data, it's like an OPM file. It's just sitting there for anybody who wants it. Uh, uh, and actually, I'll, I'll ask this one question. The Great Firewall is a, uh, a really interesting story that is uh, going to be a, a book shortly uh, about how the Great Firewall was weaponized to do DDoS attacks. Uh, and uh, I, I was 
all over that uh, two or three years ago when that happened. Uh, and uh, I was surprised how little response it got in Silicon Valley. It was as though, oh, yeah, stuff that stuff happens. Um, and Nick, uh, what's your take on uh, how the Chinese weaponized their great firewall? Essentially, they said, if you come to a site from outside the United uh, outside China uh, to a site that's inside China, we can inject uh, JavaScript into what you take back, and that will allow us to DDoS people basically using your browser to attack other people in the West in a very distributed way. And I thought that was kind of a creepy misuse of the um, uh, the Great Firewall. Have we seen it since? Uh, and should I be worried or was Silicon Valley right to just shrug it off? Uh, we haven't seen it since, but you should be even more worried because in many ways, what the Chinese did was, I think, the internet equivalent of Joe One. Let's set off a nuke, but use it to swat some flies because the same mechanism that they use could just as easily be used to, oh, this is a visitor from the U.S. State Department. Let's have the JavaScript exploit a vulnerability in their browser and take that over. Or this is an email to somebody in the State Department. Let's modify the Word document that was attached to include malicious code. So there's all sorts of attacks that could have been done with this mechanism that we don't know if they've been done since. But of course, the problem is, is let's say that we actually do detect this happening, which is hard. What, what happens is, okay, we complain to the Chinese about this, and the Chinese just respond to the poor State Department official with some Snowden slides, because this is stuff that we've been doing too. So here's my question. Google knows when I go to a site that's on the other side of the firewall because they know where those, those sites are. Uh, why doesn't it warn me? Why doesn't it say, you know, we're not going to send you there until you say you're taking the risk that the JavaScript injects are, are a real possibility and that you may end up as par a tool in a, uh, a Chinese government attack on uh, the New York Times, uh, which is what they did last time. Why, is, why isn't Google uh, treating this as a health of the net uh, problem? Google is just in a different way. Chrome now really nags if you're going to a non-encrypted site and encryption thwarts these attacks. The other problem is, is just simply avoiding China is not enough because the basic mechanism that it appears the Chinese used, I could basically implement on any modern router that I compromise. I think they took advantage of OpenFlow, mm -hmm. which would allow me as a bad guy to get root on a core backbone router and implement the great canon mechanism there. So simply avoiding China doesn't avoid potential attackers. What you need to do is encrypt all the data, all the time, always. Okay, uh, and uh, this message brought to you by uh, uh, Signal. Thanks, uh, uh, Nick. Thanks, Maury. Uh, thanks, Matthew, for joining us. Uh, this has been episode 246 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send us suggestions for guest interviews, uh, uh, and we'll send you a 
Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'm getting better about uh, sending out the stories I think we're going to cover, uh, and you can comment on them. Uh, like them if you think we really should cover them. Give us a rating. Uh, we're getting more ratings, and I'm pleased about that uh, uh, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, uh, leave us reviews. Uh, it, uh, we're glad to get the uh, five stars, but uh, entertaining uh, comments are always welcome, and I will read them on the air, especially if they're entertainingly abusive. Uh, coming up, we're going to get Jeff Jonas, founder and CEO of uh, Sensing, on to talk about uh, uh, disambiguation of identity data. Uh, John Carlin, I uh, uh, was hoping to get him on this week, and we may yet, uh, uh, author of Dawn of the Code War uh, and former uh, boss of Matthew Hyman, among other things. Uh, and finally, uh, in our show credits, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are the producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.